Es spricht der Führer. Als unsere Partei gerade sieben an Hofer sprach sie schon zwei Grundsätze aus. Erstens, sie wollte eine wahrhaftige Weltanschauungspartei sein. Zweitens, sie wollte der kompromisslos die einzige Macht und alleinige Macht in Deutschland. Welcome back to the Third Reich History Podcast. My name is Ryan Stackhouse, and we will presently be joined by Chris Osmar. This week, we have the conclusion of our two-part political biography of Reinhard Heydrich. We'll be tracing his life from the invasion of the Soviet Union to his death at the hands of the Czechoslovak commando team in Prague, with attention to both the development of the Holocaust and his worldview as expressed in key policy documents that figure in our work. For those of you interested in learning more about Heydrich after this, check out Hitler's Hangman by Robert Gerwarth. Chris and I drew heavily on Gerwarth's work when preparing, and it's chock full of detail for those of you who want more background about the turning points that we will be discussing here. Without further ado, though, the conclusion to the life of Reinhard Heydrich. So the point that Gerwarth makes about Heydrich dropping the ball and not being prepared for the occupation of France in the same way that he was for the occupation of Poland is supported by the way that he looks at the relationships between Heydrich and the army on the approach to Operation Barbarossa. Yeah, the invasion of the Soviet Union. Once again, this is a, a territory where the racial character of the people is not Western European, that, that these are Slavs. This is also the heart of the supposed Jewish-Bolshevik conspiracy that has been striving to destroy Germany for so long. So Heydrich is committed to very aggressively moving, and violently moving against the enemies that he sees in the Soviet Union. So he doesn't want to run into the same kind of hang-ups that he faced in in Poland and and maybe have the kind of results that he wound up with in France. So he has a sit down with the quartermaster general of the Wehrmacht, uh, Edward Wagner, and they very explicitly lay out who's going to be responsible for what when it comes to the Einsatzgruppen in the Soviet Union. And it is decided, and Wagner agrees, that the SD will be responsible for the operations of the Einsatzgruppen, that they will decide what they're going to be doing there in Soviet territory, and that the military would uh, only oversee logistics, uh, so supply movement, and if it was an active combat area, they would also be able to direct the Einsatzgruppen. This is really important though, right? Like, yeah. I mean, all of a sudden you have the Reich security main office, Heydrich's own personal empire in charge of all of the rear area of the Soviet Union, which we are as soon to find out will be massive swaths of territory that are conquered in the summer months of 1941. Yeah, that's right. And it shows that 
Hadrick is continuing to he's continuing to learn how to develop and secure his power. So the the way that he's going to apply the power that he gets out of this agreement with the Wehrmacht with the Einsatzgruppen is going to be to execute enemies behind the front. And those enemies are the communist elite, members of the party, uh, strong supporters, but also Jews. Now, at the beginning of the campaign, the Einsatzgruppen were not indiscriminately uh, shooting Jews. They were shooting military-aged men. The justification was that they were natural supporters of Bolshevism. Uh, after all, in the Nazi Nazi worldview, Bolshevism was a Jewish conspiracy. Uh, and also, uh, they were partisans. So the murder of Jews in the Soviet Union begins under an almost military justification. There is an argument that military-aged male Jews are a threat to the campaign. So they will be the first to be targeted. But it doesn't stop there. Himmler and Heydrich both regularly visit the East, and whenever they do, the categories or numbers or both of people who are being shot by the Einsatzgruppen expand until eventually they're, they're just destroying whole communities. Uh, men, women, and children. And all told, by the end of the war, the Einsatzgruppen and the, the Soviet Union will wind up murdering 2 million people, 1.3 million of whom were Jews. It's also, I think, really important to note that the Einsatzgruppen in the Soviet Union were effectively bringing the Reich Security main office into the Soviet Union, that the leadership of these Einsatzgruppen were the the heads of different departments of the RSHA. And this reflected uh, the the ethos that the SS man uh, should be a, a fighting soldier for Nazism, that they should have this experience of of participating, of not just just working behind a desk all the time. So you had people like uh, Arthur Nebe that led an Einsatzgruppen, or an Einsatzgruppen, and uh, he was the the head of the the criminal police. Or uh, Otto Ohlendorf, who ran the SD Inland, who produced the famous reports, the the Meldungen aus dem Reich, who led another Einsatzgruppe in the Soviet Union. These were men who were very high up in the Reich Security main office who were going off to commit these crimes in the East. It was also in the context of this attack on the Soviet Union that Heydrich got a little more daring than he'd been in the past. So, you know, he'd, he'd flown over Norway, he'd flown over the Channel during the Battle of Britain, but he'd never really been in personal danger. Well, during the attack on the Soviet Union, he went off to fly another combat mission, but this time he didn't get permission for it beforehand. And this time, things didn't go as well as before. Uh, He wound up taking ground fire 
on this mission and was shot down behind Soviet lines and managed to make his way back. And when he was rescued by a German patrol, uh, they commented that you know, they, they'd rescued a downed pilot, that he looked to be in good condition and uninjured, but they were worried that he might have brain damage because he kept claiming to be the head of the Reich Security main office. <laughs> now, afterwards, Himmler would say that this was the only secret that Heydrich had ever kept from him in their entire 11-year relationship, this one time that he snuck off to fly a combat mission in the Soviet Union. And, you know, it it could have gone another way. This could have been the end of Heydrich right there. Mm-hmm. You've done all this work on the USSR and the Einsatzgruppen. Is there stuff that you want to add from your own findings? I mean, I've already snuck a few things in, like it's starting as a partisan war. It might be worth pointing out that at the very beginning, the first week or two, the Einsatzgruppen were encouraging pogroms rather than doing the sh- a lot of the shooting themselves, uh, which does seem to c- run contrary to Heydrich's idea that it is orderly persecution that is the proper approach uh, rather than mob violence. But you know that that was all that was all an effort to uh, demonstrate that what they were doing was justified, that it was something that the people wanted. Mm, preparing the ground. Mm-hmm. So is is this wave of murder in the Soviet Union the beginning of the Holocaust? Or could we point to the Einsatzgruppen in Poland as the beginning of the Holocaust? Well, I don't think so. I think that the Wannsee Conference constitutes the beginning of the Holocaust. Up to this point, what you're dealing with is mass murder and ethnic cleansing, but it's not until 1942 as a result of the Wannsee Conference or after the perhaps not as a result of, but certainly in the aftermath of the Wannsee Conference, you see the escalation to large-scale deportations, mechanized murder, the establishment of the death camps as death camps for the purposes of wiping out large populations of Jews. And the Holocaust begins with camps actually gassing arrivals, working people to death, and intentionally destroying all of the Jews of Europe. Prior to this point, it's not it's not the same thing. And I mean that's that's certainly the way the Holocaust is is prevent, presented in I don't want to call it the popular imagination because it's not imaginary, uh, but uh, Auschwitz as the capital of the Holocaust uh, has very much shaped the way that that we think about the Holocaust. And maybe Maybe I've asked a bad question to begin with, whether this was the beginning of the Holocaust or not, because, of course, the the word, uh, the Holocaust, is something that we've imposed upon the event or the events afterwards. And I'm I'm not sure that looking at the Holocaust as a a singular event is the most productive approach. Uh, I think it's more of a process, a gradual progression of persecution of Jewish peoples in many different places and contexts. But the Einsatzgruppen and the Soviet Union are certainly the first instance where entire Jewish communities were intentionally destroyed on the basis of their race as Nazi ideology saw Judaism as a race. Uh, 
that's that hadn't happened in Poland. The the executions in Poland were they had a political function, right? That they they aimed at removing influential people, uh, regardless of their identity. If they were enemies, if they were dangerous, they would be destroyed. And that's that's the way the Einsatzgruppen approached it in the Soviet Union in the beginning. But when they they wind up shooting women and children as well, it's a lot harder sell. Not that they didn't try to find a security justification uh, for shooting women and children. They certainly did. You know, they said that the the children will grow up to avenge their their fallen fathers. The the women too uh, will will fight back in in the face of what's happening. Of course, they were precipitating it in the first place by shooting the military aged men. So what's the argument for that being the Holocaust? Or are you just objecting to the concept of the Holocaust as an event rather than a process? All right. So if, if the Holocaust is a concerted effort to destroy all of the Jews of Europe, that's not quite happening here. But there are deportations of Jews to the Soviet Union to be shot by the Einsatzgruppen from other places. That the People are brought in from outside the Soviet Union to be murdered by the Einsatzgruppen in 1941. And, you know, I, we, we must talk about the Vansay Conference, and we will talk about it in, in more detail here in a bit. But going into the Vansay Conference, that was still Himmler's, I'm sorry, Heydrich's vision would be that Jews would be sent to the Soviet Union, that they would die there, not, not in Poland. That, well, we'll get into the details in a bit. That the the shootings in the Soviet Union went beyond just these security concerns of pursuing enemies and aimed to the destruction of the Jewish population as such. Okay. I we need to get into events here in a minute because we're starting to muster evidence for different viewpoints. Uh I but I, I would say that either either if it's a moment of decision or a moment of policy. Vanze stands as a change in policy. And as a moment of decision, there's all of the evidence pointing to December 1941 and, and the possible order from Hitler, right? But let's, well, let, let's, let's, let's talk about his Jewish process. policy. Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. So let's double back to 1939 and the invasion of Poland. Up to this point, we've had this policy of attempting to encourage emigration. And all of a sudden, this reaches its limits as a viable policy. Uh, as a consequence of the war and the massive influx of Jewish uh, peoples into the Reich through the acquisition of occupied territories. Poland alone takes on 10 times more Jews than had than remained in Germany in 1939. After six years of pressure in order to encourage emigration. But the, the idea was still to get the Jews out of, of the Reich, not necessarily to destroy them outright. So Poland is still part of this ethnic unweaving scheme where they're going to set up an area in the West that is going to be absorbed into Germany and it's supposed to be totally Germanized. There's going to be the general government, which is going to be under German control, but that's where we're going to shove all the Poles 
And then there's going to be this tiny little thing off on the edge. And we're going to create a Jewish reservation where we're going to jam Europe's Jews. Yeah. And you know, there's different iterations of this plan as well. Uh, after the fall of France, there was a new opportunity, the Madagascar plan. Madagascar being uh, a French colony, which the Germans now had control of, Himmler and Heydrich really embraced the idea that they might use Madagascar as a place to settle Jews. Now, it's important to note that they realized that this would be a very harsh environment, that many, many of them were going to die. So they're, it's, this is already a murderous plan. They're not talking about creating a Jewish state somewhere and letting it be. But they're not intending to wipe them out. They're intending to shove them somewhere and forget about them. It's criminal negligence rather than genocide at this point. I think that's fair. Yeah. But there's none of these plans quite work. The Madagascar plan won't work during the war because the Germans don't control the, the sea routes that go to Madagascar. So they... Mm -hmm. Simply the logistics of it are impossible. Uh, and the idea of creating a Jewish reservation in the East uh, runs up against the opposition of the uh, local leaders in the general government, Hans Frank, Cause, because they want to be a dumping ground for, for the continent's Jews. So... In the meantime, there is this policy of ghettoization. We'll move everybody that we will move all of the Jews to cities where we can keep an eye on them and concentrate them. But we're still waiting. We're trying to find a place to put them, even though there's an ongoing argument about where that's going to be. And many people are dying as a result of neglect, disease, starvation in this staging area. Then there's the invasion of the Soviet Union. Yeah. And now the Soviet Union. You've got this new space, and you know conceivably the the Soviet Union could be your Jewish reservation. But it keeps getting pushed further and further eastward, and the Jewish population in the Soviet Union is far greater than what has been taken on in Poland. Are you sure? I thought so. I thought that like one of the major drivers of the Holocaust that I've always understood has been the invasion of the USSR. It, that Operation Barbarossa just took on too many Jews to be conceivably like it, it was an overwhelming number. And that was part of it. Um, U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, uh, Jewish population of Europe in 1933, uh, 3 million in Poland, 2.5 in Soviet Union. I remember why it is. 1.7 million Jews were left in Nazi occupied portions of Poland because they were driving them eastward. So they got not only the Soviet Union's Jews, but they got all of the Jews that they managed to get to leave Poland. Oh, at, that had gone over to the Soviet occupied portion of Poland. Uh -huh. yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, where were we? Oh, somewhere between the Madagascar plan and the Vansay Conference. Right. Uh, okay. So there, there is this new space, and there's a vision that, and remember that, you know. Most everybody thought that the war with the Soviet Union was going to be a rather quick affair, that the Soviet Union was going to go the same way that Poland and France and all the others had gone, easy to forget about Britain, and fall within you know, a few months. And then after the war, you would have these vast 
expanses of uh, formerly Soviet territory, Siberia. And then uh, that could become the, the space where Jews would be deported to. Of course, it didn't go that way. And in the Soviet Union, you would have the development of this this alternative approach of murdering Jewish communities with the Einsatz government. But, you know, as, as we talked about, this wasn't a continent-wide solution. It was contingent. It was based on what was happening there on the ground in the Soviet Union. And it also it taught Heydrich and Himmler some important lessons. And remember that they were visiting these mobile killing squads in the Soviet Union and observing them, and they saw the effects that continuous face-to-face executions were having on the German executioners. The higher SS and police leader, Erich von den Bokseluski, famously told Himmler, and I'm paraphrasing here a bit, look what you're creating, they're going to be either neurotics or brutes. So, recognizing this, that this method of destroying Jewish communities would have consequence for the Germans that were involved uh, and wanting to preserve their German character because you know, all, all these people that were sent to the East with the Einsatzgruppen, they were supposed to be the, the, the finest examples of the SS men. Now, these are the leaders of the RSHA that are out there in the field. So they start looking for different approaches, different ways to kill large numbers of people. And they started experimenting with gas vans. So a tool that was co-opted from the euthanasia program, which had very recently been largely shut down as a consequence of popular German rejection of the euthanasia program. The staff of T4, the euthanasia, was sent to the East to employ the gas vans and show the Einsatzgruppen how to use them. So, Chris, you pointed out yesterday that you thought what was happening here was different because we're moving from we're we're moving from a policy of concentration to active destruction. Yeah, and that that's they're sending these murder tools to the east for the purpose of killing Jews. And yes, the the Einsatzgruppen do concentrate people as well, but they're killing a whole lot. So. At the by, we have the invasion of the Soviet Union over summer 1941. Uh, winter 1941, Germans are stopped outside of Moscow, and that after the entry of uh, the United States in December 1941 into the war, Hitler, who has previously made statements about if Jewish forces in the United States take America into this war, it will be ruinous for them, that this is the point that Hitler says, move ahead with this. And in New Year 1942, we have the Wannsee Conference. Yeah. So, And, and Hitler uh, had made a lot of noise about how he had this prophecy at the beginning of the war that if the Jews drag Germany into another world war, that it'll be their destruction. And the entry of the, the United States into the war would be the beginning of a world war. So it it looks like 
Hitler made a decision for the annihilation of all the Jews of Europe in the winter of 1941. But there's still a question of implementation. Should it happen during the war or after the war? Having failed to to capture Moscow, the war is clearly going to be much longer than expected. How should it be carried out? The difficulties experienced by the Einsatzgruppen in, in shooting people made that seem like that's that's not uh, the best solution. The the gas fans were functioning well, but had some issues with also traumatizing the executioners. So there's a move towards establishing static static facilities. And Belzec was already completed, and other camps that would become extermination camps were under construction when Heydrich brought a large group of officials together for the Vansay Conference. The Vansay Conference is a pivotal event for the Holocaust. You can't necessarily point at it as the moment when a decision was made for the complete destruction of all Jews of Europe, but it is a centerpiece of the transition. It was the place where Heydrich looked to roll out a unified solution to the Jewish question for the whole of the continent. And I think that there are echoes here of his meeting with Edward Wagner, the quartermaster of the Wehrmacht, the quartermaster general of the Wehrmacht in the Vansay Conference. That a lot of this, the purpose of it was to establish an understanding of who had authority and make sure that everyone was at least willing to allow what Heydrich was planning to go ahead. So what happened was Heydrich sent out invitations to a whole contingent of high-ranking officials to come to this estate on the Wannsee outside of Berlin in order to uh, find what uh, he called a common position among the central authorities on this Jewish question. And it's important to note that the 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 really the the famous top figures of the Reich were not there, but a lot of their representatives were. So you had people from the ministries that would be interested in the Jewish question, uh, interior justice, uh, the four-year plan, the Reich chancellery, also the party chancellery, uh, and the foreign ministry. There were also representatives from the Ministry for the Occupied Eastern Territories and for the general government. So the people that oversaw the spaces where this final solution would take place, and not surprisingly, quite a few representatives from the SS, the Race and Settlement Office. Mueller's there, uh, Eichmann's there, and there's a few uh, representatives who had been on the ground in the East and seen what was already happening. So once everyone shows up uh, at this estate, and Ryan, you you said this this estate was bought from someone who had found himself in some legal trouble and wound up selling it off to to Heydrich or to the Est. Yeah, it was interesting. He had it was apparently the largest case of fraud in German history, and the owner had, was an industrialist who had defrauded the Berlin Gas Works Company. 
he was arrested and he received a jail sentence for this and sold his estate to cover the debts under, well, we don't know, but uh, uh, while he was in his jail cell in in Berlin to Heydrich's, uh, the, so- the Stiftung Nord, Nord something, Nordhaven, not Nordhaven, but anyway, to, to a foundation controlled by Heydrich. And it later became a, a central uh, part of the buildings scattered around the Berlin area that were controlled in, and housed the various disparate parts of the, the RSHA, the Reich Security Main Office. And a really palatial estate. Patrick was looking to make an impression. It is really, it is, it is remarkable. I, I've been there uh, and it is this sort of classic building, large stone edifice with a, a stepped garden in the back that looks out on the Wannsee where it takes its name from uh, a large part of one of two lakes in uh, essentially what, what amounts to the Lake District of Berlin to the southwest of the city. It's it's a area that to this day is still characterized by large moneyed estates, uh, kind of mansions looking out on this, uh, this sea where people go yachting, right? I believe that Heydrich, when he showed up, uh, he had actually flown himself in as well. So there's there's a lot of uh, stage managing going on at the Vansay conference. In any case, once everyone is assembled, uh, Heydrich, who was leading the meeting, opened by reminding everyone that Goering had given him the job of resolving the Jewish question in Europe. And really, this was one of his main objectives, probably the main objective of holding the conference is to get everyone to recognize that this was his sphere of influence. That he wasn't going to abide uh, resistance from regional leaders to his project, that everyone was to get in line behind him and uh, the effort to solve the Jewish problem. The guest list really reflects this, right? You have members from the Ministry of the Interior, Ministry of State, Ministry of Justice, all people who control important movement between borders or the rights of citizens or second-class citizens in the case of Jews, or the legal system, all of which obviously would stand in the way of a genocidal program, as well as political leaders from the, the territories that had been previously standing in the way of the ghettoization program. Yeah, so the deputy of the governor general, Frank, is there. Two representatives for the Ministry of the Occupied Eastern Territories are there, which I think points to part of part of Himmler's vision was that he still thought that it, that the final solution was going to take place in the former Soviet Union rather than in Poland. And he said as much. Well, I mean first he he laid out the problem for everybody. He said that there were 11 million Jewish people that would need to be dealt with. And this number, I think, is important because there were not 11 million Jews under German control at the time. He's counting not just the Jews in remaining in Germany and in the German-occupied countries, but also the enemy countries, in his view, yet to be conquered, and neutral countries. So 
I think that shows that he is considering the post the post war world and that he wants to include this entire population, even those who will not fall under German control during the course of the war in his final solution. And he, he pitched a very specific version of a continent-wide final solution, which was more or less an annihilation through labor scheme. So what he wanted to have happen was that Europe's Jews would be sent to the East where they would work on building projects, uh, particularly roads that would press further and further east until most of the Jews working on these construction battalions died. Anyone who survived, uh, he said, uh, because they would have gone through this Darwinian process, they would be the strongest. So then they would have to be destroyed so that they wouldn't be the kernel of a reemergence of world Jewry. And it was also implied that those Jews who would not be able to work would be killed at the beginning of the process. So this this whole plan was supposed to be inaugurated by first clearing Germany and the protectorate, Bohemia Moravia, uh, former Czechoslovakia, and then moving from west to east across the continent pushing Jews east and, and throwing them into this annihilation through labor program. But he did even here make some concessions that he allowed that Jews that were essential to the economy could keep working until replacements could be found for them, foreigners. And I think this is why the Wannsee Conference is pointed to as an important turning point, nevertheless. Despite these exceptions, you go from what is essentially colonial violence in areas that are to be subjugated, Germanized, and incorporated into the Reich into a policy that is unified for all of Europe that, as its explicit objective, has the extermination of the Jewish people rather than a series of schemes to concentrate them, to deport them, or ghettoize them in a reservation or otherwise move them out of the side and limit their influence or remove them from society. But I, I, you know, this is, this is the difference between North American policy toward native Americans and the Nazis, right? This is the moment that we move from a total disregard for the lives of the marginalized people that are moved around and deferred with an intent of just getting them out of here so that we can take their stuff to actively exterminating with the intent of wiping out every last single one of them. Yeah. Although, you know, that, that decision seems to have already been made before this meeting that, yeah, sure. Hadrick's laying out how he would like to implement the destruction of all Jews, but you know, the people sitting around the table here aren't deciding whether or not to do it. Mm -hmm. They're deciding kind of how to do it. And recognizing that Hadrick is the one who should make the decisions. True. The, the discussion about whether or not the policy should be changed and what its aims are have already occurred. And we don't have clear documentation on the moment or who gives this order, whether it's a decision that comes from on high or uh, you know, one is that Hitler takes Himmler's uh, Himmler's diaries, or not his diaries, his day planners, 
show a series of meetings with Hitler after the declaration of war prior to the von Zee conference that are often pointed to as a period when Hitler gave a verbal order to proceed with plans that had been proposed by the by the SS and the Reich security main office. Yeah, I th- I think his his Himmler's diary says his entry for that meeting with uh, Hitler is Jews to be destroyed as partisans. And the language there is interesting because that that is the justification that the Einsatzgruppen were using in the Soviet Union. Mhm. So he he's presenting this to Himmler, Hitler and Hitler saying, "Okay, that sounds as a good idea. Proceed." And then Heydrich, as is often the case, takes assent to a policy goal and then presents the policy in a way that vastly expands his power and he takes an order from Hitler and then expands its implications to the full extent of what he can get away with, which in this case is the total destruction of European Jews. Mm-hmm. But, you know, at, at the Vance conference, uh, he is surprisingly light on his feet with plans because once he laid this all out, he was offered uh, the suggestion by Hans Frank's deputy, Joseph Böhler, that this whole process could start not in the Soviet Union, but in the general government, in Poland. Because he said, uh, transportation's not a problem. There's already all kinds of Jews in Poland. And he said the Jews there were mostly not capable of working. So therefore, in this annihilation through labor scheme, they would be killed first. I think that's pretty standard, though, for Heydrich's operating procedures. If you look at the policy documents that he creates, he will cite his source of authority or he will just point towards how policy is supposed to be changed. But he follows a very Menschenführung uh, Nazi style of leadership of pointing towards an objective like Hitler that Hitler has outlined or that is in line with Hitler's goals and then saying, I leave the implementation of this policy up to you and expect further directives on how exactly we're going to do this. But this is what you should all be working towards. Now go. I mean, you see that in the principles and the follow of internal state security. You see that in a very important memo that he sends out in the 1930s about how to uh, deal with criticism. Like that seems to be his administration style. And effective at that. So coming out of the Vance conference, while a explicit plan may not have been developed there, and while a decision wasn't necessarily taken there, afterwards, all the important players are on board. And in the next months, the construction of the extermination camps, which would service Action Reinhardt, would be well underway and the Holocaust as the deportation and murder of Jews in static killing facilities would be underway. Camps that were part of Operation Reinhardt are an important distinguishing feature here in the development of the Holocaust as well. As, as Chris has said, in the popular understanding of the Holocaust, Auschwitz occupies a preeminent position but at this time was still primarily a camp where labor was done and people sometimes died as a result of malnutrition, mistreatment, 
and all of the other horrific abuses of power that go along with that. What Chris is alluding to here is the creation of extermination camps, which are a new development in the Holocaust. Yeah, and you know, the part of the reason why Auschwitz is the capital of the Holocaust in the popular mind is not so much the death toll, although more people were gassed there than anywhere else, but the fact that some people survived to tell the story. For the the action Reinhardt camps, there were very, very few survivors. You know, some of them only a handful, three or four. The the purpose of them was to kill everyone that came in. The only the only work that there was to do uh, would be on a Dondra commando uh, loading people into the crematory. So a camp like Auschwitz, which still had a labor component in the extermination through labor scheme, would make a selection when people arrived into people who were unfit for labor and were immediately killed, gassed, and burned. And then people who would be kept to perform labor until they were no longer capable of of working, and then either they would die of disease or they would be gassed and burned. So it's a fine difference, but not in the development of Auschwitz, because Auschwitz did not have that function prior to the Wannsee Conference, nor was it a camp like Treblinka, which was an extermination camp where everybody who passed through the gates was intended to die immediately, right? People who were sent to Treblinka were slated to be killed. And while these extermination camps uh, would operate through Action Reinhard, Reinhard Heydrich himself would not live to see this process unfold. In fact, the, the action would, would take its name from Heydrich in honor of him posthumously. Indeed, the moral arc of the universe finally caught up. So Heydrich had, in the meantime, become the protector of Czech lands, known as the Protectorate of Bohemia and Moravia. Yeah, so uh, the Protectorate had been under the guidance of Konstantin von Neurath since it had been brought under the wing of the German Reich. But there was the perception that von Neurath uh, was not uh, aggressive enough in the Protectorate. And in order to solve this problem, Heydrich was sent to replace him. Although von Neurath, I, th- I think he, he maintained the title uh, of uh, protector even after Heydrich came in. But, but Heydrich was, at that point, effectively in charge. What, what was the title? Reich Protector? Deputy Protector of Bohemia and Moravia Acting Protector after the ouster of Konstantin von Neurath who actually continued until August 1943, when he was replaced by Kurt Deloiga, another key figure in the Reich Security Main Office. So Hydra showed up in the Protectorate in the fall of 1941, and he wanted to take a very different approach to the people there from what von Neurath had done. And he moved to crush the resistance there through exemplary measures. So right after he shows up, there's all kinds of executions, but uh, they're supposed to serve a deterrent effect. And posters are put up all over that show who's been killed and why. 
And he also moves against the black market, hoping that this will both decrease resistance and and show the the people there that that he's looking out for them because this the, these black market goods are taken away from what would could have otherwise uh, been theirs. And this uh, this intense campaign in the protectorate earned him the title the Butcher of Prague. But he was still clever, I guess, realistic in the way that he approached things. Uh, he did recognize that the industry in the protectorate was critical to the German economy. And that because of that, he had to keep the checks working. And uh, he did things like increasing rations for the armaments workers uh, in order to uh, motivate them. But Heydrich did have a very specific long-term vision for the protectorate. Uh, he wanted to Germanize it. I mean, he, he didn't want to have this situation continue where uh, the protectorate was something like a, a German colony that was going to be administered from Germany, but still have a, a Czech government. He wanted to Germanize, that is, that's that's actually a tough term to, to describe in, in one sentence. Yeah. So on one hand, that's Aryanization, which is uh, one of your specialties, but uh, to to basically state that whoever can be quote unquote determined to be German blooded is now an Aryan. Uh, what else does it involve? Language. Uh, it involves uh, you know, teaching children German and uh, having German be the the language that everyone operates in public. It involves appearance. Uh, it involves, for Heydrich, uh, behavior, acting like a German. But he believed that a large portion of the Czech population was not Germanizable. Something like a third to half of the Czechs, he thought, could never be German, that they did not have German blood in them that needed to be rescued. And his vision was that uh, in the future, the non-Germanizable Czechs would be deported and removed to the East behind the Jews that Hadrick was already working to send in that direction. So much similar to the plan for the general government, right? To, to create a place that would be a German colony where we would shove everybody who was not Germanizable. Yeah, yeah. I don't think, I don't think you need to look at this as a, a plan for another genocide. But an ethnic cleansing, for sure. So in the meantime, good relations with the Czechs were important because this Czechoslovakia was extremely strategically important to the overall German war effort. The, the world-renowned Skoda Works is a massive uh, factory for, well, under the Nazis, tanks and, and other uh, heavy machinery was part was part of the, the industrial base that had been captured by the Nazis in 1938 and uh, in fact had been responsible for a large portion of the tank forces, producing a large portion of the tank forces that went into the, the invasion of the Soviet Union. If from from a, a grand strategy point of view, 
there is the Rhineland that is responsible for energy production and significant portion of industrial production, chemical, uh, chemical industry. Uh, in Romania, there's a large portion of the energy industry with the, the Palesti oil fields. In Czechoslovakia, there was the Skoda Works and other uh, heavy industries that were almost as important as the Rhineland in terms of the overall production capacity in the German war machine. So either with the stick or with the carrot, the Czechoslovakians needed to be on, on side. Yeah. And for that reason, this deportation, post-Germanization deportation scheme uh, was likely something that, that Heydrich saw as being part of the post-war world, um, not something that would be carried out during the course of the war. Despite these grand visions, fate would intervene before any of them could be realized. Yeah, Heydrich would be assassinated in the protectorate. You might expect somebody like Heydrich that had such an important position and that was in charge of the entirety of the protectorate would have quite a lot of security around him and that assassination wouldn't have been possible. Heydrich was notoriously paranoid about his own security. In Germany, in his house in Berlin, he actually had alarms in every single room of the house. Including the bathroom, right? Uh, that's what I take from every single room, but I don't know. Uh, apparently, he was, he was concerned that the communists would catch up with him or somebody was going to take him to task. And, and it wasn't just that case. He, he, as I said earlier, he was a security man. But in the protectorate, he consciously and intentionally eschewed this kind of ostentatious security. He felt like excessive security would show fear and weakness. And that was not the image that he was trying to portray to the Czech people. So he didn't have an armed guard with him when he moved around and he did and he drove around in an open-topped car. So this might be an overcorrection to an extent, but it certainly it was the statement that he was aiming to make. Yeah. Yeah, he he was trying to show that he was not scared of the Czech people that he did not need to protect himself, that he was protecting himself through his policies, that the Czech people should be too afraid to step out of line and resist in that kind of way. But it was in this context that the Czech resistance and the Czechoslovakian uh, government in exile would make a play for his assassination. Well, up until the moment he died, Heydrich was not entirely unfounded in this confidence. The president of Czechoslovakia in exile, Benes, was constantly embarrassed in, in his political discussions about the future fate of the continent that would play out in London by the fact that Czechoslovakia had the lowest levels of resistance to Nazi occupation. The British government kept trying to pressure him to encourage some major uprising or some major symbolic act against Nazi occupation. But Benes always demurred because he was afraid about the consequences for his people. The lack of resistance, though, was a constant sticking point during negotiations. And the British actually started to use the Munich Agreement from 1938 that ceded the Sudetenland to Germany to try and pressure him towards some type of action. They implied that if the Czech Slovaks didn't do anything to actually resist the Nazis, uh, then perhaps Britain would not repudiate the Munich Agreement and that the Sudetenland would remain part of Germany after the Second World War. So it was in this increasingly desperate mindset 
of concern about the territorial integrity of Czechoslovakia in the post-war world, that the SOE, the Strategic Operations Executive, approached Benes with an assassination plan. And though he'd been hesitant to encourage resistance before, uh, he signed on. And they went ahead with an operation, Anthropoid, with the goal of killing Reinhard Heydrich. The SOE had their own problems because they were an upstart new agency that had been essentially brought into being in order to try and, as Winston Churchill put it, set Europe aflame with you know, dirty tricks, commando operations, things like this. But they had not had a success to their name yet. And they were under pressure from the established British security organs as this kind of amateurish collection of know-nothings. So eager to maintain their independence and prove their value to the war effort, they presented this idea. A small team of Czech and Slovak commandos who volunteered for a suicide mission, there was no evacuation plan, dropped into the country from a British bomber. Now, after they met up with the Czechoslovakian resistance, they spent, I forget how long, when they dropped or, or, and when the actual assassination was. It was several months bouncing around between different members and trying to find out what Heydrich's movements were. So during this period, they made a critical mistake in establishing close personal relations. They became romantically involved with some of the women from the families that were putting them up. And sort of the, the group of people who knew about their activities grew and grew. Uh, this didn't compromise their planning, but it would prove to be, have disastrous consequences in the aftermath of the assassination attempt. So through this period, they were watching Heydrich and trying to find an opportunity, a weakness, tracking his behavior, and they found their opportunity. Of course, as we already mentioned, uh, he was personally somewhat vulnerable, that he drove around with just his driver in an open-top car. That's still a difficult target, but they found that he regularly traveled along the same route, so they knew where they could expect him to be. They knew generally when they could expect him to be there. And they found one particular point in his regular route where there was a hairpin turn that would require his driver to slow down just enough that they might be able to take a shot at him. And importantly, right at that turn, there was also a bus stop. So they could sit and watch and not necessarily arouse suspicion while they waited for his car to approach. And that's the plan that they would wind up putting into action when they decided that the time had come to bring their suicide mission to a completion. Now, on 27 May 1942, Heydrich departed uh, from his home uh, after having spent the morning playing with his children out on the lawn in order to fly off to Berlin and meet with Hitler. But he would never make it there, because as he approached this hairpin turn on his way to the airport, one of the members of the commando, Valshik, 
signaled that his car was approaching uh, with a mirror, letting the other two members of the team prepare. Gabchik was sitting with a Sten gun uh, under his coat, I believe. Under a raincoat on a sunny day. Yeah, so they, they were careful not to arouse suspicion, but not always careful enough, I guess. So as Hadrick approached, the car slowed down as expected, and Gabchik jumped out in front of the car, pulled out his gun, aimed it at Hadrick, pulled the trigger, and the gun jammed. Now, Hadrick was not one to back down from a fight. He had been a longtime fencer. He had shown that he was willing to fly combat missions in the war. Rather than instructing his driver to speed away as fast as possible, they put on the brakes, and they prepared to confront this assailant. But when the car came to a stop, another member of the team, Kubish, stepped out and threw a bomb under the car. Uh, a improvised explosive device made from an anti-tank mine. Uh, the bomb exploded and wounded both Hadrick and his driver, along with Kubish. But at first, uh, that did not slow down uh, Hadrick at all. He got out of the car and began to give chase to Gabchik. But just as he had cornered Gabchik behind a telephone post, he collapsed. Gabchik thought he, that he was about to shoot him. It turns out that Hadrick had been very severely wounded by that improvised bomb. So Gabchik would get away, as would the rest of the assassination team, and Hadrick would be picked up off the street by a German and Czech passersby, taken off to the hospital to be operated on. But you know, Hadrick being uh, a fairly paranoid person, uh, and being in a country where he was not terribly well-liked, was worried to let anyone but a German operate on him. So for uh, several critical hours, uh, they waited for a German surgeon to arrive to operate on him. Now, it did look like he was going to recover. Uh, they they operated, they, they got all the, the shrapnel out of the wounds, took out his spleen, and closed him up. But uh, in the following days, uh, sepsis would set in, and he would succumb to that blood poisoning. So that was the end of the Butcher of Prague, but it certainly wasn't the, the end of his legacy, uh, and the assassination itself would have a really significant fallout. Now, there was a, a sense that something very very public needed to be done to show that Germany was not going to abide by this kind of attack. Uh, and a village was identified, Lidice, uh, based on some very shaky evidence that there was a connection to the conspirators that had uh, shot Heydrich. And the village was annihilated. The structures themselves were razed to the ground. All of the men were shot. The women sent to concentration camps. And the children, aside from the few that were decided could be Germanized, were sent to Kelmno and killed in static gas vans. But that wasn't going to be enough. The Germans wanted to get the actual conspirators, the people who had been directly responsible for 
Hadric's death. So they set a deadline for the capture of this team, uh, leaving the impression that there would be severe consequences. Though it was these consequences were unspecified, but rumors were going around that uh, one in ten people in the Czech population were going to be killed if the conspirators weren't found. There was also a call for the execution of 10,000 Czechs in retribution for the death of Hadrick, a proposal that was only rejected because of the deleterious effect that it might have on the Czech armaments industry. In order to actually track down the assailants, a massive effort was actually undertaken to replace all of the papers of all men in Czechoslovakia. So the order went out that if you had not, if you did not have new documents by that weekend and you were a man, you were going to be shot as a, presumably one of the members of this commando team. And I suppose that uh, if you were a member of the commando team, uh, you could attempt to get new papers for yourself, but boy, would it take some guts to walk into an office and try and pull that off. Well, and to present fake papers to the issuing authority at a time when they're going to be paying particularly close attention to what whether or not they're valid. Absolutely. Well, and one member of the team obviously didn't have that kind of fortitude uh, because just two days before this deadline for uh, their capture expired, uh, one of them walked into a Gestapo office and ratted out the rest of the group in order to he hoped to save his own skin and that of his family. And in the wake of this voluntary surrender, the Gestapo identified the rest of the team and cornered them in an Orthodox church where they had been hiding out. Uh, when they, they came for them, they came in force. They brought 800 people to attack this church that had only a handful of the conspirators inside. Uh, and there was a firefight that, that lasted for several hours, and they were, they were able to hold out in the church uh, before being killed. But at the, at the end of the fight, uh, a few of them slipped down into the crypt of the church. And uh, when the, the Germans came in, they at first did not search the church terribly well and had not detected those that were down in the crypt. And uh, as I understand it, as they, as they were leaving, they saw an, an article of clothing that was out of place or didn't, didn't uh, uh, fit with the, the guys that they'd seen. And then they redoubled their efforts and, and discovered that there were uh, several more hold up uh, underneath the church. And they really struggled to get these guys out. They, they like, threw tear gas into the crypt because there was just a little entrance and uh, presumably they were going to be armed. Uh, were they to crack it open. Uh, so they threw tear gas down there, uh, tried to flood them out with water, and ultimately would use explosives to to widen the opening so that they could uh, mount their assault. But but once that happened, the people that were left down in the crypt recognized that they were done for, and they wound up committing suicide. The, the tragic consequences of the involvement of Kubish and Gabchik with members of the resistance becomes apparent. It's as a result of the pieces of clothing that they borrowed from other members of the Czech resistance that many of the families that supported them are connected to the assassination attempt. 
uh, during the interrogations, the severed head of the mother of one of the co-conspirators was presented in a fish tank. Yeah, and, and after this, the, the entirety of the Czech resistance would be rolled up. Uh, they were almost completely destroyed as a consequence of this assassination. And you know, it's a little ironic that it was only Heydrich's death that finally realized that one major goal that he had going into the country in the first place of completely destroying the Czech resistance. Uh, in the aftermath of Heydrich's assassination and the fallout from it within the protectorate, there was an effort to determine what his legacy was going to be. Uh, there was a very well-attended funeral for Heydrich in Berlin, where Himmler and Hitler both gave eulogies for the man, and you know, his name would be attached to Action Reinhardt, the crescendo of Holocaust in Poland. But we're still trying to deal with his legacy today to figure out who he was, uh, what his role was in these most terrible crimes of one of the most terrible regimes in history. Uh, if we can understand Heydrich, then we can go a long way in understanding what Nazism was. And one of the big questions in trying to figure out Heydrich, maybe the big question, is did he do everything that he did because he really believed in Nazism and the racial theories behind it and the elevation of the German people? Was he an idealist or was he just looking for power? Did he have more base motives? And that has been a question in, in the, the historiography. Was Heydrich an opportunist or an idealist? Ryan, what, what is this position of Heydrich as opportunist? How have people laid that out and what, is it, what does it mean if it's true? Well, there's one school of thought that sees Heydrich as somebody who per nakedly pursued power. He was a technocrat who was moving numbers and primarily interested in the exercise of power and the privileges that that office afforded to him within the Third Reich. And so he was somebody who was pursuing power, pursuing advancement of his own power, pursuing expansion of the SS empire within the Nazi administration, and somebody who was more or less indifferent to ideology, uh, somebody who in any system, in any ideology, would have mouthed the words and paid deference to the ideas of whatever the ideology was, but that his real interest was the exercise of power. And a lot of this portrayal comes from the, the banality of evil, the uh, argument made by Hannah Arendt, and uh, from the trial of Adolf Eichmann in, in Jerusalem after the war. And in fact, the portrayal of Heydrich as an opportunist often comes from people who were close to him, but people who were talking about him while they were on trial for their own involvement in the Nazi regime's crimes. So there is in, in these sources a definite self-exculpatory 
tone in portraying Heydrich as a, a, a sociopath, really, someone who had no scruples and who was, uh, as, as the communists described him, a blonde beast who uh, ruthlessly operated without regard for ideology, without regard for human life, without regard for anybody except himself and his own ascent to power. You don't buy this. You don't buy this argument, right? I don't buy it at all. I, I, I absolutely do not buy this argument. Yeah, you see him as a true believer, right? An idealist. More than anything, um, I, I think I, I understand where the ideas come from because he definitely was portrayed that way by people who were close to him. And as, as you as you raise the point, there is this larger knock-on effect from Hannah Arendt's famous essay and, and later book about the banality of evil, Eichmann, Eichmann's trial in Jerusalem, where Eichmann's defense was that he was just a technocrat he, and the, this larger idea that they were desk murderers. When I look at Heydrich, though, I don't see a desk murderer. I, I see a true believer. And in the conversations we were having about this, when we were getting ready for this episode, you, you made excellent points about his, to begin with, there's his idea of the, the soldierly civil service that uh, members of the SS were to be political warriors. If you look at the people that he surrounds himself with, they aren't opportunists. They're members of this war youth generation that have had a similar experience, similar early traumatic exposure to uh, the civil war and the German revolution at a, at a formative moment in their lives. And were often involved in the Fry Corps and the, the violent reaction to killing people who had uh, threatened, were threatening or had actually engaged in revolution. So if you look at, if you look at his associates, that doesn't make sense. But then even if you look at the way that he, the, the policies that he comes up with and the way that he implements them, the opportunist argument often says that, well, look, if you, if you look at the way that he would manipulate directives and you look at his entire personal style with everybody around him, what he would do is he would find ways to extend his power. Uh, he would find ways to exploit directives, policy directives to expand his area of control and expand his power. But I think, and that's definitely true, right? Uh, Heydrich was a, a political animal who, uh, as Garavarth points out, had a particular sensitivity to the weaknesses, uh, the political, personal, and institutional weaknesses of everybody else that he dealt with. But Heydrich also had this sort of perverse form of higher morality that he, that as he understood it, that he was serving. That if you look at the way that he formulates the directives and the way that he, the way that he pursues the goals of the ideology, he's not accruing power for its own sake. He's not somebody who sits back and enjoys the privileges of his office, like say Goering, who spends a significant portion of his time just hopped up on morphine. He, he's somebody who works from dawn till dusk tirelessly in pursuit of the, the larger goals of this movement and making sure that the, the broad 
aims that Hitler articulates are translated into policies that can then be turned into actions. The power that Heydrich pursues is to realize the Nazi vision, not to enrich himself. Uh, to draw, to I guess I could have said just that, but <laughs> you make you make strong argument. But we might also ask if this is a little bit of a false dichotomy between opportunism and idealism. I mean, opportunism seems like uh, more of a tactic. While I, idealism is more of a a worldview, I think it, it might be better phrased as the question might be better phrased as was was Heydrich driven by careerist or ideological motives, and and I think you're right that it that he was more concerned with advancing the movement than he was with advancing Reinhard Heydrich. I, I but I think that you're I think that you're right to say that it's a false dichotomy. But as we were talking about earlier, it's a question of what his end state is. What is his motive? What is his goal that he's aiming toward? All right. So Heydrich is part of this uncompromising generation. Yes. Maybe that's a bad question to ask is, was he, was he uncompromising? <laughs> uh, was, was he looking for uh, opportunities? to advance his understanding of the Nazi vision um, wherever possible? Uh, or was he going to push for that vision regardless of the, the consequences? Was he tactical? Did he retreat? Well, uh, as in most cases with a with a question like that, th there's yes and no. Mm -hmm. y yes, more than no. I think that he 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 was smart enough to know when he needed to back off, and like somebody who is described by every one of their subordinates after the fact as manipulative and harsh, and with an eye to the weaknesses of those who surround them and how to exploit them is obviously somebody who's tactical the the question is who what they were serving and so not to circle back and beat that drum again i think i think that you're you're right in that respect that he's not he is tactical but i don't think that that means that he's he is part of the uncompromising generation as vilt portrays them not to, uh, I suppose, get hung up on just the, the the terminology used to describe them, right? But he he is he is totalizing in what his political goals are. He is part of the. He, he's he's strict with everybody around him and with himself. He's hard on himself, and he expects others to be hard on themselves, and. It's from that position that he's able to expect so much from his subordinates, and that I, I think that the the, the post-war arguments about him about their fear for him as a superior are, in many ways, hiding what at the time was a real admiration, tinged with an understanding that this was all dependent on their performance and their ability to live up to those ideals, but 
as Himmler put it in the funeral oration, admiration for Heydrich's ability to embody those ideals as sort of the ideal Nazi, right? I don't, I, I guess I would see a false dichotomy in saying that because you're tactical, that obviously you aren't an ideologue. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I, I think that's that's like that's like the differentiation between Heydrich's approach to violence, right? That he hated Kristallnacht because this was counterproductive to our aims. But it might have been the most radical solution. It just wasn't the most effective towards the goals that he was aiming toward. There there does seem to be a, a trajectory though that he undergoes through his life that aims towards more cooperation, even though it's always advancing his own personal power. So participation in the night of the long knife. So the, the murder of uh, Rome at all, that's, that's a very uncompromising approach, I think, but he's willing to give a little bit of ground on his position that uh, there should be an orderly persecution of Jews during uh, Kristallnacht and he gets involved. Uh, he's able to step back a bit when the Wehrmacht gives resistance to what he's done in Poland with the Einsatzgruppen. He recognizes that, uh, and he's willing to sit down and have negotiations uh, with Wagner before the beginning of the Soviet campaign to make sure that uh, everyone is in agreement about what's going to happen, who's going to be in charge uh, with the Einsatzgruppen in Poland. And then finally, in this crowning achievement of a terrible career, the Wannsee Conference was about bringing together all of these disparate strands of the Reich power structure uh, to come to an agreement. Now, in each of these steps, he's advancing his own power, but he seems to be learning how to do that through compromise and, and understanding rather than you know, the, the approach that he'd taken at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. I wish I had something as concise as that to say. I think you really nailed it on the head. Um, it, but I, I, I do, yeah, I think you're right. It's, it's, it's reflected in all of his policy directives that he puts out, though. Because, uh, like, the principles of internal state security... Yeah, talk about the principles of internal state security and, and the way that he uh, approaches the German population. He's shockingly forgiving, right? Well, and this is where you have the this yes, I, in a word, yes. Like it's it's doesn't make it into the historiography very often because it's so hard to process. The the principles of inter internal state security, I think as a document represent Reinhard Heydrich better than pretty much anything else out there. If you look at transformations or struggle, you get his mindset about the enemies facing Germany and people often focus on that. But I think in the principles of internal state security, you see how he can operate with two parallel systems, one for people that are good Germans and one for people that are threats to Germany. And I mean, on the one you get in paragraph one, that we're going to have the ruthless suppression of anything that threatens the war effort, which he then later clarifies liquid uh, and like possible liquidation. And people write him like, what do you mean by that? I mean, I mean, execution, immediate execution may happen. 
for anybody who threatens the threatens the war effort or doubts the justice of the war who comes from a, a communist background or from one of these targeted minorities. But then in paragraph two, he's like, literally, on the other hand, you you should have psychological understanding for Germans who out of for for forgivable motives are uh, forget their sense of duty in a moment of weakness and uh, are drawn to criticize the regime and that you should give these people warnings and on the one hand these warnings should definitely uh, should definitely make sure that these people know that it, there's not going to be leniency in the future but that at the same time the warnings shouldn't just be to intimidate somebody it should quote lead to the internal uh, here implied ideological uh, the internal fortification of the racial comrade and not merely to intimidation. And then, then at that point, you should hand them off for further sort of ideological oversight by the local party apparatus. There's, it, and, and I mean, no doubt, this is a very, uh, this is a very repressive system that is incredibly paternalistic, but you know, it, by no means is this liberal by any stretch of the imagination in the type of forgiveness that is being extended and the consequences for stepping out of line. But there's a big difference between somebody who's supposed to be educated back into being a good German who has mo failed in a moment of weakness and somebody who is to be, quote, ruthlessly liquidated, right? Like, and that can coexist in in his mind in the same thing because Germans are Germans are always passive actors who are being led astray by conspiratorial alien forces, and if they can be won back, then they should be won back, and they should be reeducated, and they should the 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 advantages of Nazism that is for their interests should be uh, should be presented. But if they're lost to it, then uh, you know you have to you have to. It's life over limb, and you will cut them off and kill them in order to to sort of preserve the integrity of the the larger body politic. So it, it's a real paradox in in his thinking, um, but only in a worldview that values human life as, as equal. If you put yourself in the mindset of the Nazis, it's perfectly logical. So that there is your your case for Heydrich as idealist. I suppose. <laughs> Sorry, it took a while to get there. <laughs> Brevity is the soul of wit, as they say. Well, that's all right. And it's taken us uh, a long time to get to this point in our discussion of Heydrich uh, and his life. But I've really enjoyed doing this, um, taking a, a more biographical approach to uh, doing Third Reich history. Um, and I hope that our listeners have enjoyed it as well. And I feel like this might be something that we'll need to do again. And on that note, we draw this episode of the Third Reich History Podcast to a close. Once again, I'd like to thank those of you who take the time to listen and pass along the word of mouth. Our international audience is truly booming, and we are closing on the 10,000th episode served. I have to say, is a really big, exciting landmark for us. We started in August last year, and this is beyond our wildest dreams in terms of the audience that we thought we would reach. So thank you. If you do have any comments or questions, especially as political biography is a new approach for us, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach me, Ryan Stackhouse, 
over social media at Staxomatics. That's S-T-A-X-O-M-A-T-I-X, or under my name over Facebook. Chris prefers to keep a lower profile, but I will, of course, be happy to pass along anything you have to say. With that, I'd like to thank you for joining us and hope to see you next time. Until then.